Mitch Kimbrell. And I'm not. I'm Craig Cubs. <laughs> if someone gets that, that is a blast from the past. Um, so now you've got me totally flustered. This is from Dan to Beersheba, I think. Uh, and this is yet another episode, another month uh, of this tomfoolery. And we're as this is being recorded... Um, I'm leading our church, Christ Memorial Church, where I'm senior pastor, Craig's associate pastor of education, through a sermon series in the book of Joshua. And one of the phrases that we've been using a great deal in our staff meetings and as the pastoral staff talks about the text and um, just as we have conversations with people about the book of Joshua and are seeing it having a typological relationship to the Lord Jesus and his bringing his people in the promised land and the like, a phrase that keeps cropping up is already and not yet. Mm. And that phrase doesn't only belong to discussions concerning the book of Joshua. As it turns out, it belongs to discussions pertaining to the whole of the Bible. And so we thought uh, we ought to dedicate a podcast episode to helping folks think a little more clearly about what it is we're saying and maybe at least as important, what it is we aren't saying (laughs) when we use that phrase Already and not yet. Right, right. You know, you can look at this issue, this concept, I should call it, the already and the not yet, sometimes called the now and the not yet. Um, Either way, you want to say it. It, You could put it under the umbrella of a, a larger issue of the delay of the end, the, the theologians say the delayed eschaton. Why isn't the end of salvation here now? It's Christians saying, if God has saved me, why is the Christian life so hard for me to live? If, if he has saved me, why do I still sin? Why haven't we just gotten to the place where I don't sin? Or, or they may ask, has he saved me? Or is he in the process of saving me? Or, or am I waiting for him to save me? How, how should I look at that? And If I've been saved, why is it that I die? Yeah, right. That's a good question. And so we find that the fact that God has initiated salvation in human history and that it's not over yet, creates a tension for us. And that's sometimes been called the delayed eschaton or the delayed end. But it's, it's a tension. You can look in the New Testament and you can see that all those perspectives that I just used in those questions, has God saved me or is he saving me or is he going to save me? They're all represented. If you went to Ephesians chapter 2, it's a clear statement that says, by grace, you have been saved. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's right to say, I have been saved. For the Christian who has been converted, he has come to saving faith in Christ, he's been born again, he's put his trust in Christ He's united with Christ by faith alone. He has been saved. But the New Testament isn't consistent on that point. There's another perspective, and that's how we have to consider it. There's another perspective for looking 
at the salvation we're experiencing. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Are you looking that text up there, Mitch? You've got it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Yes. Us who are being saved. And I think 2 Corinthians chapter 2 gives a similar perspective, not an identical language. Uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So a couple of passages that inform this sort of progressive nature yes. to our salvation. Salvation is, from that point of view, it's a process. It's something that's going on. The one doesn't contradict the other. And then you've got the entirely future-sounding perspective. Uh, look at Romans chapter 5, around verse 9. Paul says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of, uh, of God. So there you have kind of, uh, we've been justified, we shall be saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Yes. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So there's kind of the past tense yes. aspect. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved yes. by his life. So Paul's kind of interacting in all the different aspectual senses of salvation, and it calls to mind uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, uh, yes. where Paul talks about in this sort of golden chain of redemption, those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So even that glorification that we see as future can be spoken of as past tense. So the aspectual <laughs> sense of, of this salvation idea um, the even the apostle in the same book in some of the same, the same sections, sentence. yeah, yeah, is is uh, yes. is helping us to see that there's more than one way to understand. Yes, this. and you use the word aspectual, which might not be familiar to everyone, but there are different aspects to salvation or different perspectives from which we must look at it. Not only that we may, but we really must. If we stay with one perspective only, we don't understand the whole. And it's been said by others that it, our redemption in Christ is like a beautiful jewel or a cut diamond that has lots of little faces on it. The, the jewelers call those facets. And if you turn it this way, you're looking at this facet, and then you turn it a little bit, you're looking at it from another perspective. But this this time perspective seems to show up everywhere. One of the places that the phenomenon that we're talking about is is most clearly seen is in looking at what the Bible tells us about the kingdom of God. And you could just stay in Luke's gospel and uh, and you're going to see a variety of perspectives about the kingdom of God in Luke in Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 8 and following, you want to read some of those for us? Yeah, so Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he says to them, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Yes, yes. 
he says, the kingdom, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. So there it is. It's already arrived. Yes. And then in the very next chapter, in chapter 11, Jesus is teaching his children, his disciples to pray. And he, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus is teaching his followers yes. to pray that God's kingdom would come. Yes. Just after he's told his disciples to go around saying, the kingdom has come. It's come near to you. The kingdom is near. Now pray that it will come. Yes. There's the tension, the eschatological tension. If you go a little further down in Luke 11, he's... Uh, uh, talking about an exorcism. Jesus himself is casting out demons and his critics are criticizing him uh, for uh, for uh, breaking laws, essentially. And they're, they're criticizing him and saying, well, this fellow casts out demons by the devil. And Jesus responds to them by saying, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yes, yes. There's Jesus. Luke's writing his gospel sequentially, but there are these different time perspectives. The kingdom of God needs to come. The kingdom of God has come. Uh, you remember famously in Luke 23, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the, the thief next to him says, remember me when you come into your kingdom when you come into your kingdom so it hadn't he hadn't come and and maybe the the most perplexing but there in Luke 17 uh, I'll read verse 20 and following it says being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come he answered them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So there, in the same sentence. The king of the kingdom is the speaking. The king of the kingdom. And he talks of the kingdom as though it's coming, because it's not coming this way, but it is coming. And yet, it's in the midst of you. So it's both coming, and it's in your midst. That's a classic expression of this eschatological tension, this already and not yet. Is the kingdom of God already here? Yes. Is the kingdom of God not yet here? Yes. And how do I, how do I wrestle with that truth? First uh, John uh, chapter... And that, and that question, uh, again, for those who are unfamiliar with this conversation, this question is, is what causes us to have this category for the already and not yet. I think it was Gerhardus Voss, the wonderful Dutch Reformed theologian who uh, is credited with coining that phrase already and not yet. But that's that's the phrase that we use to talk about the tension that we're, we that's put right. our finger on today. That's right. If I had to anchor it to a verse where that language is used, um, in 1 John chapter 3, um, he's... Uh, John's writing, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, 
and it has not yet appeared or has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hope's future tense, right? So there it is. Uh, We're children of God now. We're going to be children of God in a way that we haven't seen yet. So when we're thinking about this already and not yet, and I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that will hopefully help folks come to clarity um, regarding what we are saying when we say already and not yet, but also what we're not saying. Because I think I've been familiar with this phrase for some years now, and Sometimes you can hear it spoken of in a way that makes it sound like, well, we've got some stuff now and we'll have some different stuff later. We've got this now, we've got this already, and we'll have that then. Yes. We, we, we don't yet have that, as though we're kind of dealing with two different categories. Two lists. Two lists. And, yes. and we're saying... That's not the right way to think about already and not yet. It's not the right way. It's not two lists. Some things are already and some things are not yet. It's more complicated than that. That would be a little easier to understand. Even little children can understand. You can have a cookie now and then you can have dinner later. Or you can have dinner now and you can have a cookie later. One is now and one is not yet. But the the problem with that is that, that is treating this concept as though it were merely temporal or merely chronological, just time divisions, the time that has already come and the time that hasn't come yet. But the nuanced understanding is this. And I, I saw you dropped your driver's license out of your wallet earlier today, and I saw that your legal name is Craig Nuance Combs. I've... I've... <laughs> At yes. least, if it isn't, it ought to be, it as much as be. I hear you use that word. So, of course, it's a nuanced of conversation. It's new. If it's true, it's nuanced. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the understanding is there are these, these things, these ideas, things that are already true, but not yet fully realized. All right. Sinclair Ferguson said to me, I asked him once, is the... Oh, excuse me, you uh, you dropped a name, Craig. Oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. The the uh, the August uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, whom I had the privilege of having as a teacher a long time ago, uh, not like we're buddy-buddy, but I certainly admire and respect the gentleman. But I'm making I, your chain. Of course, you do have you you have a relationship with Doctor Ferguson. <laughs> I asked him this question. I was preaching uh, in Ephesians, and I I managed to track him down and get him on the phone and and asked him, "Is the new man fully new?" Because I was wrestling with this unfinished work or what seems like unfinished work, and he said, "Well, well, <laughs> fully." But not finally. <laughs> and and I, I, I got the, the nuance he was getting at. It's true that you're new. It's also true that you're not what you're going to be. Fully, but not finally. Uh, and and that, is, that is a corollary, of course, of 
uh, the 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 doctrine uh, that we call total depravity, the total in total depravity doesn't say that every person is as bad as he could be. It says he's evil in all his parts and no part is untouched by the evil. He could still get a lot worse. And the cor- that correlate for us is that we are already new creatures in Christ, but we're not yet the finished creatures that we will be. Not yet fully transformed into the image of Christ. So we have to hold on to that idea. Already true, not yet fully realized. Already true, not yet full. Uh, now, you know, <laughs> maybe we'll do this in another episode of Dan DeBeer Sheba. Even that, that Ordo Salutis, well, I guess you read it from Romans 8, really, has that already not yet tension to it. Maybe we'll have picked that order of salutus up, that order of salvation from Romans 8. Maybe we'll pick that up in another another episode. I think um, there you can see this as, as exemplified even in the doctrines that we confess, the basic doctrines that we confess in the oldest creed that we all confess, the Apostles' Creed. You can hear that there is an already not yet tension in it. Um, You know, I would argue that even the person of God, I want to be careful. I don't go right into heresy. (laughs) Yes, please do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That the person of God uh, in a sense is what accounts for this tension that we feel because we understand God. He has revealed himself. We understand him to be eternal eternally self-existent, that before God made anything, there was just God. And then God made everything that is, and there's nothing that's been made that he didn't make. So there's God, and then in creation, there's everything else. And we have to understand that that includes time. But when there was just God, there was no such thing as time. The time is a construct, our Our best physicists are now beginning to wrestle with the relationship between time and space and realizing that these things are intertwined. But before any of that, there was just God. So when God came into time to implement redemption, it became necessary that this already not yet tension should exist. How do you how does the eternal self-existent God relate to creatures and a work of redemption that happens in time? Uh and, and so, you know, God had already created everything, and yet new people are still coming into the world. So there's an already and not yet to the creation of mankind. And and Jesus Christ was always God's only begotten Son, but he had for our salvation, he had to be born of the Virgin Mary and take on flesh, which happened in time. And the Holy Spirit eternally always proceeded from the Father and the Son, but he wasn't yet poured out until the ascension of Christ. Uh, in fact, provocatively, John chapter 7 uh, says that the 
spirit, your translation probably says the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, a reference to his resurrection. But if you if you look at the text in the original, it says the Holy Spirit was not yet <laughs> because Jesus was not yet glorified. So th- this this uh, uh, tension exists. I think you can see it in all the doctrines that that flow after the Apostles' Creed gives us the the, the persons of God. Then it gives us um, the Holy Catholic Church. So there's there's an already and not yet to the Holy Catholic Church because it's already the case that God has his assembly. He's told us that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church. And Colossians chapter 1, the church is one. So there it is. It's already the church. And, and yet, yet no one's going to argue that we are now holy like we will be. No one's going to argue that we are now Catholic or one or universal like we will be. That's right. It, the, the church observably is still fractured, isn't it? It's not as one as it will be. God says it's one. It's already true, but its unity is not yet fully realized. That's well said. And the few, there are elect souls that have not come in yet. The church isn't finished being built up. There are other believers who are going to come in, some of whom, so far as we know, haven't been born yet. We don't know the time, so maybe they've all been born, but probably not. Probably not. And 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 there is future glory for the church and future unity. And they're just those things are not yet realized. You you can read Ephesians chapter two and you can hear the language of the church being in the process of being built up right now. And yet the uh, John the Revelator in in the book of Revelation chapter twenty one, he's given this vision of something that had hadn't yet come to earth. Not yet fully re- He was shown a picture of the fully realized version. Yes, as a bride adorned for her husband. Yes, yeah. yes. So there's an already and not yet to the Holy Catholic Church. The same thing is, is true with the communion of saints. You know, I believe in God the Father, I, Jesus Christ the only Son. I believe the in Holy, the Holy Ghost. The Holy, the Holy, the Holy Catholic, Catholic Church, Church. The communion of saints. Communion of saints. So... What is that communion? Well, the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, tells us that we're, we're already baptized by the Holy Spirit into the one body of Christ. And, and so we have what that passage calls the a unity of the Spirit. There is unity in the Holy Spirit. I mean, and Ephesians chapter 4, which you're going to get to in just a minute, already tells us that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit. Uh, so... It gets at that unity, and yet... And yet, exactly. That same passage, Ephesians 4, carries with it the exhortation that lets us know that that unity at this moment is still threatenable, if I can use that word, because it has to be maintained. We're supposed to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's... It's not yet fully realized as a unity that can't be threatened, that can't be jostled, that can't be harmed in some way. And that's a real tension for us because we're not allowed to stand on just one of those truths. 
and ignore the other one. If we just say, hey, the church is one and that's it, I don't have to think about it, and we're not preserving the unity of the Spirit, we're not listening to God. But we're not free to just say, well, the church is just a mess and it's not one and and I don't care. You know, we, we have to pursue that unity in the Spirit. How about the forgiveness of sins? Does that exist in an already and not yet? I'm, I'm suspecting you'll say it does. <laughs> yeah, you see, I, I think you have to see it that way. We've been trained, and, and rightly so, and for good reason, to glory in the fact that our sins are already forgiven, right? Again, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, we've been given the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him, we have redemption. The, the forgiveness. forgiveness of sins. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, and we ought to glory in that. We ought to camp on that and cling to that and hold it. And yet, are we not given the instruction that we ought to confess our sins? And doesn't First John say, if we confess our sins, if we say that we have no sin, we're a liar. If we say that we have not sinned, God's truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And, and Jesus has already told us in Luke chapter 11, we were here earlier, but in the model prayer, he teaches us to ask the Father to forgive us our debts. Yes. Even as we forgive our debtors. Yes. So, yes, the Bible's saying both these things. We're already forgiven. And pray that the Lord will forgive you. Yes. So my, my sins are not yet forgiven in the, in the fullest sense. It's not my forgiveness not yet fully realized because I still sin and have things to be forgiven for. In the... In, in the fullest sense, there'll come a day that's been promised when I won't have any sins to confess. Do you think in Hebrews 7.25, I think that's the, that's the reference uh, where the writer of Hebrews says that Christ Jesus uh, ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you think this conversation is informed by what the writer of Hebrews is saying? There? Yes, I, I think it's, it's incredibly informed by it because... Uh, Jesus has died once for all. That's the language of the New Testament. He shed his blood once for all. But what's he doing in heaven? He's pleading the blood. He's in a process of interceding for us. For us as sinners, he's still pleading for us and interceding for us. That's a, that's a great catch right there. That's a good, a good reference point. So the forgiveness of sins... You, you're allowed to claim the already, but you must have the perspective of the not yet, or else you miss out on part of the practice of the Christian life that God is commanding. We, we need to confess our sins. We need to pursue more repentance. That's all part of the already and the not yet of the forgiveness of sins. The same thing is also true of the resurrection of the body, although it's sort of in the opposite direction because the opposite, what I mean is, we we na most naturally think of the forgiveness of sins as past tense. Jesus paid it all. My sins are forgiven. I'm free. And we don't intuitively think about the not yet of the forgiveness of sins, though we should, that perspective. But we also rather intuitively think about the resurrection of the body as just 
an entirely future event as a not yet because all of us are still living in bodies that are dying. Every single one of us is marching toward the grave, even the babies. All of us are dying. But the Bible gives us a startling uh, perspective on the resurrection. There is an already to the resurrection. And of course, it's in the resurrection of Christ, the first one. The, the Acts chapter 16 identifies Christ as the first resurrection. And, and 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the first fruits. And that is invoking Old Testament imagery and language in Israel when they had a, a festival of the first fruits. And the idea was there's a crop in the field. God's promise is represented by the bounty of a crop. And when the crop starts to come in, you go out and you harvest the first part of it and you have a big party. And when you press this analogy of the first fruits, you really do see that this already and not yet is not something now and something different later. Um, I, I grew up in, in southwest Georgia, and immediately behind our backyard was a field. In some years it was cotton, some years it was corn, some years peanuts, some years tobacco. But it was always the case that whatever first came ready to harvest, be it corn, peanuts, tobacco, that was the harvest for the rest of the field too. That's it right. was not... One thing is the first fruits, and something else is the rest. So, so this first fruits idea, really, I think, when we when we embrace what Paul is telling us in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and we're informed by what he's informed by in the New Testament feast of first fruits, it really helps us to see what it is we're saying actually yes. when we talk about already and not yet. That's Jesus's right. resurrection is is already and the not yet is is of the same kind it's of the same kind it's it's what's behind jesus's startling words to the sisters of lazarus when jesus went with the purpose of raising that man from the dead and he went to comfort the sisters and one of them said to him lord if you'd been here my brother uh would be alive uh, and he said, your brother's going to live. And she said, well, I know he's going to live in the resurrection. And Jesus said, I, I am, am the, the resurrection. resurrection. And that's an already not yet kind of a thing to say. The resurrection's here because I'm here. And Jesus even he says. hadn't been resurrected and yet even, when he said that. But he said that. And Jesus was the first fruits. So the resurrection is already here. It's already true because the resurrection's to come of all the saints and all the wicked to be raised unto judgment and eternal condemnation. But those resurrections are part of the same crop. The resurrection of the body for the saints has already begun with yeah, the resurrection of Christ. To revisit this first fruits analogy, it's not the case that whatever you harvest, you know, you're harvesting some now and harvesting some later when any is ready to harvest. It means all is ready to harvest. Yeah. So the fact that the harvest has begun helps us further understand this already That's not right. yet tension. It is the same crop, and it's already here. And yet, the Bible is is very clear. It hasn't all been brought into the barn. It has not all been brought into the barn. <laughs> and there is a big day of harvest yet to come. Yeah. So we could get lost in the subtlety of the metaphors. We're harvesting souls now, and the harvest of their 
glorified form, body and all, is is to come later. But 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, famously tells us to be comforted on the assurance that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, that's that's the not yet aspect, but it's a it's a resurrection that's here now because Christ is here now and He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed, working through the creed again, the life everlasting. So we have I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of body, and the life everlasting. The Amen. life everlasting. Yeah, that that has an aspect of already not yet to it as well. How, how does God talk to us as believers in Christ? Except that he says, you have life. First John chapter 5, you know, whoever has the Son of God has life. Jesus says, John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If we know Christ, we have eternal life. Uh, whoever believes has life. Uh, that John's message uh, over and over, John chapter 3, John chapter 6. Uh, whoever believes has life. He who has the Son has the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So it, it's, a, it's a, a core facet of our evangelical faith. It's, it's a, a truth gloriously rediscovered in the Reformation, that you can know that you have eternal life. And yet, <laughs> and yet, there's a not yet to the eternal life that we have. Uh, you know, uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, do you have that text there? Yeah, uh, and this has been a, uh, a great comfort to Sarah and me as we've left behind family and these kinds of things to, to move to New England, this promise, who will, I'm going to back it up. Truly, I say to you, Mark 10, 29, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands mm -hmm. with persecutions. And in the age to come, so there's your already not yet, and in the age to come, eternal life. Yes, in the age to come. You've already received now and in the age to come. Yes, yes. And in, in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul's writing about those who are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath, the day of revelation. That's another already not yet right there. The wrath of God is now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all yeah. unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But if Romans 2, there's a, there's a day of wrath still to come. So wrath is already here, not yet fully realized. I digress from the creed. The life everlasting fits this. It says that... Uh, uh, there's a day, a storing up wrath, the day of judgment and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Romans 2, and now verse 6, God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So God will render eternal life to those who, we may say correctly, by faith in Christ, 
are in the process of seeking for glory and honor and immortality. They're following after Jesus. But the the life that God's going to render is is not yet fully realized. That's that's uh, that's why it's a not yet. It, it he hasn't rendered that yet. So we see in these different aspects of the creed, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting, and we've seen in some other aspects uh, the kingdom of God is one of the biggest ways that we see this already not yet being worked out. But imagine. Craig, you know, we we even pray before we record the podcast that these podcasts will be helpful to the folks in our church. Yes. So maybe there's a there's a, a lady who's listening while she's washing dishes or a couple who's listening as they're driving down the road. So what yes. about all this already not yet business? How do we take it from the esoteric and yeah. academic and really work it into our life? Because I think this is eminently, eminently relevant to our lives. I, I agree with you, Mitch. It is relevant to our lives. I think if you can grasp this concept and get comfortable with living with these two perspectives at the same time, right? The already and the not yet, already true, not yet fully realized, if you can get there, it will help you. It will explain for you some of your frustration and maybe help alleviate some of your frustration or your Pum, uh, perplexity uh, because you are not yet what you will be. A lot of your frustration that you experience in the Christian life is, I'm supposed to be a Christian. Why am I like this? Maybe I'm not a Christian. That's where people go. And, and it's, it's a comfort to know that I am in Christ and I am not yet what I will be. So it is to be expected that I am in a process. It is to be expected that I'm, there's movement and change that's still taking place. It's to be expected that there's an end in view that hasn't come yet, but can't fail to come because it's already true. God has promised it. It's already true. If I thought everything was dependent on my efforts, I would doubt that it's already true, but God says it is true, that I'm conforming you to the image of my son. I've accepted you as in him. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus yes. Christ. Yes. And so, yet I can embrace the process because I'm sure of the end, and I can understand the necessity of the process because the change of life that I'm experiencing is not yet fully realize, and I am longing for the full realization. So there, that lays out a path for me to go that way, to follow along that way, and to understand it. Uh, I think we are comforted when we just understand. We, we accept our own weakness and failure, and we accept the weakness and failure of others, not as good, not as normative, but as inevitable given that we're in a process. And, and so we, we can give ourselves, without giving ourselves license to do whatever, we can cut ourselves some slack and say, I am already the Lord's. I am not yet what I will be. You know, I've seen bumper stickers like that, and sometimes those are a little simplistic, but, you know, I'm, I, I ain't what I'm going to be, but thank God I ain't what I used to be. Yeah, or God ain't finished with me yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's valuable truth to that, as corny as it is. 
uh, that that's that can help us with our perplexity and our frustration. And some people shipwreck their faith because they're they get discouraged at what they see and they're not looking at it the right way. The progress is being made and there's an end in view and it's a certain end. But I'm here right now where these things are already true, but not yet fully realized. I, I think along those lines, but another another angle on that is just to say that this perspective strengthens your understanding of the necessity of fighting sin. It doesn't tend toward um, what's inevitableism. I'm searching for a word, but complacency because, you know, whatever's going to happen. A fatalism. Fatalism is really what I was searching for. That whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. I got nothing to do with that. I'm just going to wait it out. That's not what God has revealed at all. He has told us what's already true. New in Christ, born again, new heart, new eyes, new mind, mind of Christ, learning to think God's thoughts after him, uh, minds in the process of being renewed, lives in the process of being reformed. All this is going on, and yet there's, a, there's an end there's an end in view. There's nothing fatalistic about that. There's there's direction for what I need to dig into and what I need to grab onto and which way I need to go, where to put one foot in front of the other and do the next thing that moves in the direction of what God has said certainly must come, what's not yet fully realized. Um, I think this perspective along those same lines undergirds our confidence of victory in the battle against sin. See, I would give up. If if I thought God was saying, I've saved you this far. Now I want you to clean yourself up. And then, then you know, at the end, I'm going to check you out. And hopefully I'll be letting you in because you'll have done a good job of cleaning yourself up. Uh, br- brother, I would just be in despair about that. Yeah, it's that's a that's a horribly wrong way to understand what Peter says about God giving us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's not as though at salvation God just fills up our toolbox and then says best of luck to you. Yeah, hope you build something good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's that's not true. The confidence is that if it's already true, God's already said it, God's already done it. It can't fail to happen. So there's going to be victory in my fight against sin. And I can even see what it looks like. I, all the way down at the end of time, I can see that it looks like me, surprisingly, looking like Jesus. I already can see that. So I know that there's victory along this path because I know it has to end there. Um, and I think this... this um, helps us to pray. Isn't that what Jesus said? We quoted Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. He, he, he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Well, you can unpack that. There's a lot in that that speaks to the whole process, isn't there? That, that we are in, in this place and time, here and now, looking to something that's in process and must come, and he tells us to pray for it to come. So I, I think it under, undergirds that and teaches us teaches us how to pray. Uh, Mitch, I also think that a good understanding of the already and the not yet um, can serve to deepen uh, our 
humility. Hmm. And the thing I have in mind is a little illustration that uh, I don't know if, if I tell you the man I learned it from. I don't know if he made it up. Uh, Stephen Smallman uh, is an author and pastor and formerly of World Harvest Missions, which now has another name. It's got uh, some trendy name that I can't remember what it is. Um, <clears throat> and he may have gotten it from Jack Miller, who was a mentor of his. But it, it's it's an illustration of our our sanctification. It's based on the familiar bridge illustration for for uh, an evangelistic conversation where you've got two parallel lines, and and below the bottom line you got people, and above the top line you got God, and there's a gap. The parallel lines represent the gap, and man tries to get to God and he can't do it in the bridge illustration. Then you, you take a cross that's just the size of that gap and it fits right in there. And so that's the bridge. Uh, in this particular version, it's, it's a vertical bridge. It's a ladder, if you will. It's a pathway up to God through the cross of Christ. So it, it's, you know, for, for its value in an initial conversation, it's a good, it's a good illustration. There's a lot more that needs to be said, but what, what this gentleman said was if you, if you introduce the time element to the person who comes to Christ, and now you, you, you extend those lines off to the right, those parallel lines, and the person is going along in his Christian life. He's got the cross that's bridging the gap between where he is and where God is. And as he goes along, he's growing in grace. He's being transformed. But the, one of the biggest changes that's happening to him is his mind is being enlightened and renewed in such a way that he realizes more than he did before how big is the gap between what he is in himself and what Christ is in himself, what God is in himself, and how far apart he is. So Christ has bridged the gap, but as the believer moves forward in time in his experience, in his perception, it it's as though the gap gets bigger. Now, the gap was always infinitely big, so it doesn't really get bigger. But as his mind is expanded, in, your perception. in his perception, he's like, oh, I'm less holy than I thought I was. Oh, I'm less like God than I thought I was. Oh, I'm a bigger piece of work than I thought I was. Oh, no. And that realization would be overwhelming and would represent a shipwreck of faith, except that as those lines aren't really parallel, they start going further apart. They start curving up and curving down. That cross is moving right along with the Christian, and it keeps growing. Wow. It keeps getting bigger. Wow, what a it, powerful illustration. It always touches the bottom line, and it always touches the top line. Wow, hallelujah. Like, now I realize, yeah, I'm in worse shape than I thought I was, but guess what? Jesus is bigger than I thought he was, too. Wow, his saving work is grander than I thought at first, yes. too. Wow, praise the Lord. Yeah, it's, it's so, you know, I'm already, I'm already there. I'm not, it's, it's not yet, but it's, it's sure because Christ is bridging that gap for me. Wow, that's so good stuff. I think that's, I think that's, that's really good stuff. And I, I think it's good for our souls to realize that we aren't what we're going to be. But we're going to be because of what Jesus has yeah. done. The promise is as sure as the one who makes the promise. The promise is as sure yeah. as the one who makes the promise. That's that's well said. So, you know, I think finally, in addition to impacting how we understand our own growth in holiness, this this doctrine, this 
perspective, already not yet perspective, uh, does impact our understanding of our efforts in evangelism. Uh, I think it explains, in a certain way, the tension that some of us feel, a lot of Christians would admit the feeling, between the doctrine of election, on the one hand, which we teach and believe that the Bible teaches uh, that God, from before the foundation of the world, has chosen a particular number of sinners whom he plans to redeem in his son, Jesus Christ. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the necessity of the church going out to proclaim the gospel, and even, as Paul puts it, to persuade people. And without this nuanced more than one perspective idea, this already and not yet idea, I think we'd be prone to pick one of those or the other. If And if you pick one, you pick election, you go, God's going to save who God's going to save. Doesn't matter what I do. Or you pick the other one. God doesn't know who's going to be saved. I better go find them. But in fact, whom God is going to save is already true but it's not yet fully realized. And we're in the process of bringing in the fuller realization of God's electing purpose. We're bringing in the elect. They're the ones we're looking for when we're preaching the gospel. So that enables our, the, our ability to have confidence in the success of our, of our gospel witness ministry, but not being indifferent to the necessity and the urgency of it. We're confident that it's always going to work how God wants it to work, but we're still able to embrace it urgently and as, as a necessity. And I think that's healthy for us because those elect, they're already elect, but they're not yet saved. Well, that's all really helpful, again, helping us to see the relevance of this already not yet discussion. Um, as we often like to do at the end of these episodes, here are some resources that you can turn to if you want to read more and think through this already not yet business that we're talking about today. And a couple of places we'll direct you to are a couple of Dutch guys. So I mentioned one <laughs> earlier, Gerhardus Voss, his biblical theology is still in print. He died in the middle part of the last century, but yep. uh, his biblical theology is still influential, still in print. So, And I think that's just what it's called, biblical theology, Gerhardus Voss. Uh, another Dutch fella, Herman Ritterboss, uh, wrote a book called The Coming of the Kingdom, and it's this kingdom idea, the coming of Christ's kingdom. It's already come. It came when Jesus came, yeah. and it hasn't come in its fullness. Um, so you can uh, you can read Ritterboss on working that already, yeah. not yet idea. You've got to look to a Dutchman if you want to get this stuff right. But I will say that reading Voss and reading Ritterboss you should at least adjust your expectation. It's not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, they aren't page-turners. Yeah, yeah. This this is not for sissies to to read Ritterboss, but you won't you won't be sorry that you did if you wade into a little bit of Herman Ritterboss. And maybe if if there's a spectrum between less accessible, where I would put Ritterboss and Voss, and more accessible, something in the middle is George Eldon Ladd's Theology of the New Testament. Now he's going to come at it. I can't remember. Have we done? An episode on different millennial positions. No, but it's a good idea. Okay, um, I'm persuaded by the Millennium Falcon position um, personally. <laughs> yes. um, but and I don't uh, want anything to do with anything that has a name millennial. So. Oh, okay, good. All right. 
Uh, those guys are the worst. No, they're it, the worst. Take it from me as I one know. of them. I know. It's the worst. I'm the parent of several, so okay. I know, yeah. Um, but George Eldon Ladd was historic premillennial, which is another way of talking about post-tribulational, but his theology of the New Testament that was written, I think, in the 70s, maybe? Uh, may I think earlier than earlier. that, but I'm not sure. But in any event, he has some good things to say about this already not yet idea. And then a couple of recent guys who I would put more on the accessible, and even though they're they're very, very fine scholars, a couple of Baptist guys, both of whom currently are professors at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, both of whom have written biblical theologies. Jim Hamilton, whose biblical theology is God's glory and salvation through judgment, and Tom Schreiner, whose biblical theology is called the king and his beauty. If you read a good recent biblical theology, you're going to find them talking about this already, not yet. And uh, referencing Voss and Ritter Boss. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but maybe uh, maybe watering them down so that you can understand what it is these guys uh, are I think saying. that's realistic. Well, thanks for hanging in there with us on another episode of From Dan to Beersheba. As always, we want to thank our producer and editor, John Pastor. If you've found us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a good review. And uh, if you stumbled upon us and you want to find us to subscribe, search uh, CMC, that stands for our church, Christ Memorial Church, CMC from Dan to Beersheba, where you find podcasts and you'll find this podcast so that you can subscribe. And to learn more about the church where Craig and I serve as pastors, you can go to cmcvermont.org. For Craig, I'm Mitch. Grace and peace to you.